Good morning. Please be opening your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. Last week we learned of Jesus' fame spreading, which led to us learning of John the Baptist's fate and Herod's folly. Or as my nine-year-old Madison recounted for us when we reviewed the sermon over dinner Tuesday evening, Jesus' fame, John the Baptist's death, and Herod's stupidness. Whichever way you want to say it, um, Matthew 14, 3 through 12 serves as a flashback that helps us understand the godless events that led to John the Baptist's execution. Now this, this narrative outdoes the most bizarre soap operas. Uh, it includes infidelity, incest, jealousy, spite, revenge, lewdness and lust, cruelty, brutality, and outright morbid gore with a calloused indifference to human life. But such is our fallen world, isn't it? God's Word brings us face to face with the ugliness of the world, but in a controlled environment that helps us understand it rightly. This story makes me uncomfortable even to read it in front of my children. But our children are going to see the ugliness of the world, and what better place to see it on display than in the pages of Scripture with the truths that point us to the sure and steadfast remedy for all of it, right? So we'll read Matthew 14, 3 through 12 together. For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, It's not lawful for you to have her. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. So much that he promised with an oath to give whatever she asked. Having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oath and because of his dinner guests. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took away the body and buried it. And they went and reported to Jesus. There's a lot here to unpack and to explain, but I'm going to try to unpack it all around four points in the next two weeks. This week, God's people speak the truth. And God's people are willing to suffer for speaking the truth. And next week, we're going to look at God's enemy. God's enemies suppress the truth. And God's enemies will suffer for suppressing the truth. But we'll begin this week with just that God's people speak the truth in verses 3 and 4. For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Proverbs 28.1 tells us that the righteous are as bold as a lion. And John the Baptist was righteous. Think with me for a moment uh, about this bold, uncompromising, truth-telling, mighty man of God. We're going to handle verses 3 through 4 in reverse, first bearing down on verse 4, then backing up and considering verse 3 and some of verse 10 this morning. And then we'll cover the rest of the verses in next week's, or in our next sermon in Matthew. First of all, I want to point out that John knew what was going on. Verse 4, For John had been saying to him, It's not lawful for you, Herod, to have her, Herodias. Many people will tell you straight up that they don't know anything about what's going on in the world. You talk to those people, don't you? They don't know anything about the cultural threats of, these, of this day. They don't know anything about the dangerous thought patterns that are taking root in higher education, CRT, intersectionality, and all this garbage. They don't know anything about it. They don't know or take time to understand the political decisions being made and the moral implications of the decisions. And they don't know anything about the wicked lives of those in government. They'll not only tell you that they don't know or think about these things, they wear it as a badge of honor, don't they? They're proud that they don't fill their minds with such garbage. You've heard it, haven't you? 
but how many of them know the depth charts of all the NFL teams? Uh, they know the trade rumors in the NBA and Major League Baseball. They know the good, bad, and the ugly of everything on Netflix, but they're too holy to keep their fingers on the pulse of culture. Have you talked to them? Yeah. Well, John the Baptist wasn't like that. He actually was holy, and he knew what was going on. One has to know what's going on in order to, in order to either advance righteousness and justice or to confront the evils of his day. You have to. It's funny, we pride ourselves in not knowing the evils of our day, but we look back and we say, why, why didn't people stand up against slavery and all the racism in the past? They should have spoke up and thundered from the pulpits about all the evils that were taking place. They should have known what was happening and spoke out against all the wicked people. In hindsight, we think they should, but today we think we should sit on it, not know about it, not speak to it. So John knew what was going on in the palace, and what a love story it was. Herod Antipas was married to the daughter of Aretas, the Arabian king of the Nabataeans. And Herodias was married to, married to Herod Antipas's half-brother Philip. Herodias and Philip even had a little girl together named Salome. Well, Antipas took a liking to his sister-in-law, Herodias. It might have started with some harmless flirting. Perhaps she confided in Herod to Antipas concerning how Philip took her for granted or how Philip was moody. Well, who knows how it really started, but the relationship grew. And ultimately, with total disregard for how awkward it was going to make things on Thanksgiving dinner every year, Herod divorced his wife. Neither the Bible nor secular history gives us her name, but he sent her disgraced and deflowered back to her father, uh, Aretas. And Herodias divorced Herod's brother, Philip. And these two lovebirds hitched their wagons together for better or for worse. Unless, of course, they were to find something else that made them happier and then all bets are off, right? But, but that's the love story that took place with Herod and Herodias. And John the Baptist knew all of this. And that, was, it, that wasn't all that he knew, though. John didn't just know what was going on. John knew the law. He knew what the Word of God said about it. For John had been saying to them, "What well, it is not lawful for you to have her. God's people need to understand the times, but not as an end in and of itself. It's not just this morbid curiosity so I can know and just log it away and talk to all my friends about it and gossip about it. That's not what we're talking about here. We have to understand what's happening in order to apply God's Word to cultural issues. And in order to apply God's Word, you have to know what God's Word says. In our first point, we saw that Herod that he knew that Herod had her, or Herodias, and now we see that he know, knows it's not lawful. John the Baptist knew, that her, knew the Herod and Herodias love story was an abomination to God. And that's exactly what it was. John the Baptist knew that the spirit of the slogan, love is love, was a damnable heresy. You hear that today? Love is love? No, it's not. There are, there are things that are called love, so-called, and there is a scriptural definition of love. And what Herod and Herodias had might have felt like love to them, but love's more than a feeling, isn't it? The 80s song was right. More than a feeling. John understood that the law of God had to govern all human institutions for the institutions to function rightly. And that rejection of God's law brought curses on the, on the curses of God on the people. John understood the moral train wreck that was the house of Herod. So how was this love affair a moral train wreck? Well, let me count the ways, right? It's not lawful for you to have her because, point number one, Herod divorced his first wife, the daughter of Aretas, without cause. He had taken her, promising her father that he would take care of her, taken advantage of her, and then put her away, cast her aside like a piece of garbage to marry somebody else. Admittedly, divorce and remarriage was a debatable issue amongst first century Jews. The less rigorous school of Hillel would have been okay with this aspect of the situation. But not the stricter Shammaiite party. They would have condemned the divorce as invalid because there wasn't, uh, because there wasn't anything that she had done wrong. So there wasn't any cause whatsoever. Which school do you think John the Baptist landed in? Well, if you said the Shammaiite school, then you're wrong. 
The answer we're looking for is neither. John the Baptist found himself in neither school. He preached a message holier than either of the rabbinical traditions. Unsurprisingly, John the Baptist agreed with King Jesus, didn't he? And Jesus said, They are no longer two, but one flesh. And what God has joined together, let man not separate. That's where John landed. Not only was Herod divorced, it gets worse. Herodias, the Jewish term for this is she repudiated her first husband. Because he didn't divorce her, she repudiated him. There was no word for a woman divorcing her husband in Jewish law. A wife couldn't divorce her husband under Jewish law. So she sidestepped Jewish biblical law and invoked Roman law, which did allow a woman to divorce her husband. But that wouldn't have made any, it made it any more acceptable to the Jewish opinions, especially given the fact that there was no recorded abuse. With Herodias not being put away by her husband, she was still lawfully, according to Jewish sensibility, she was still lawfully his brother's wife. Still lawfully belonged to Philip. And that's part of what Herod, what John the Baptist is getting at here. But it gets worse. Worse than all the divorce, Herodias had not only been married, who was she married to? Herodias had been married to Herod's own brother, Philip. Leviticus 18.16 and Leviticus 20.21 If there is a man who takes his brother's wife, it is abhorrent. The word there is actually unclean. Uh, It means they should be separated. It's a covenantal word that they should be put out from amongst their people. That he has uncovered his brother's nakedness, they will be childless. That sounds odd, doesn't it? Not, not the man taking his brother's wife being a barren part. We kind of get the ick factor of that, don't we? We get that. The strange part is that they will be childless. How does that work? Is the Bible saying that they will be magically or mystically barren? I mean, that could be proven wrong pretty quick. How many people married their, bro- their brother while he was still living, while both brothers are still living, and then had a child together, and then you say, oh, the Bible said they'd be barren. Well, that's not what it's saying. It's saying that there's no covenantal they that takes place whatsoever in this situation. That that the union is not recognized by God and therefore it's not to be recognized by the covenant community. God's law considers this marriage to be a form of incest within the family and therefore any offspring they produce should be considered as bastard children because their marriage is illegitimate. That's what it's saying. That they weren't to be treated as children of the covenant community. We don't think that way today because that's not nice but the Bible thinks that way because it is what keeps a culture holy. That with a stigmatized sin. Now we stigmatize righteousness. You're a bigot if you speak out against sin. They stigmatized sin, which kept people from <gasps> sinning, right? It, it created a culture that walked away from sin and toward righteousness, even if not from the heart, to give a functional society. It couldn't save you, but it did lead to order in society. But John not only knew what was going on, and he not only knew what God's law said about it, every layer of it, John spoke to Herod about the sin. Notice also in verse 4, For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. This is not analogous to you calling out Biden or Trump or whomever it is that you're calling out in your echo chamber on Facebook. That's not the same thing. Okay? John wants Herod to hear the message and repent. That's what John wants. This is not public whining. That's what we see a lot of, isn't it, on Facebook? A lot of public whining. Uh, They did this and they did that. All the bad people. uh." No, this, this is a prophetic word calling out for King Herod to repent or face the righteous judgment of a holy God. That's different, isn't it, than whining. Every single synoptic makes it clear that John the Baptist was not just calling out this sin in the open air, but he intended for the rebuke to reach the ears of Herod. Mark 6, 18. John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Calling the message to Herod, he doesn't even recognize Herodias as his wife. It's not lawful for you to have your current wife. He says it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Notice that. Boom! Gut punch, right? Luke 3, 19, when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded, the word for reprimanded here, convicted, exposed, put to shame. So it is in the open air. It is taking place in public. He's put to shame by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of the wicked things which Herod had done. So he didn't just call this out either. Luke makes it clear that he calls out more of Herod's sin than just this one prominent one. 
only a limp-wristed, effeminate pansy man, y'all welcome, would say something negative about another man that he wouldn't want that man to know about. Guys, man up. If you're going to say something negative about somebody, you don't need to be afraid they hear about it. You need to be willing to say it straight to their face or you need to zip your lip until you repent of your cowardice. Herod was supposed to be a ruler over the Jewish people, but he was brazenly and shamelessly ignoring the law of God. Herod and Herodias' marriage was a clear breach of the law of God as we've seen. But the Herods had little regard for God's law. They saw themselves as above the laws that governed their subject. That sounds a lot like our leaders today, doesn't it? On every side. John the Baptist rightly understood that no man was above God's law and that the public sins of the leaders impacted all of society in addition to imperiling Herod and Herodias' soul. So John boldly pointed out that the laws of God were binding on the highest in the land as they were on the most, uh, the, the most humble in all the land. He was fearless in his denunciation of evil in the high places as he was in the low places. And let me point this out. If you're a hypocrite, if you call out one side of the political spectrum without calling out the other for the same things, you had a problem with this federal student loan bailout, which is, it is wrong. But you didn't have a problem when Trump was handing out all the money and making sure he got to sign the checks. You're a hypocrite. That's what you are. If you've got a big problem with Hunter Biden's laptop, but you don't have a problem with, uh, with Trump's hush money that he's paying to Stormy Daniels, you are wrong. Amen. We've got to call out all sin. This isn't party politics. We are men and women of God, and we call wickedness, wickedness wherever it's found, even if it crosses into our, our team or into our echo chamber. Notice John says it's not lawful for Herod to have Herodias. And all three gospel writers call Herodias his brother's wife, even though they're married. You know why he does that? Because it's true. And lo and behold, we've settled the Christian response to preferred pronouns once and for all. You've been reading about that? Should we use people's preferred pronouns? A man is a man and a woman is a woman. And we call them what they are or we go against God. I'd rather offend men and women as offend God Almighty, wouldn't you? He wouldn't even call Herodias Herod's wife. And we're thinking that we should call a man she? God forbid. We lovingly tell the truth and trust God with the outcome. Now it must be said that the telling was likely done in public, directed at Herod, even though Herod wasn't technically there. This seems likely for two reasons. First, John the Baptist would have almost certainly had no access to Herod Antipas before his arrest. Antipas was a limp-wristed pansy man and he stayed in the, in the palace all the time. And John wasn't the kind of man that got invited into the palace. Right? Matthew 11, 7 through 8. What did you go out to see in the wilderness to see, Jesus asked. A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing, they're in king's palaces. Well, that's where Herod was. But John the Baptist is out in camel skin, out in the wilderness. And Herod, being the kind of man who dressed in soft clothing while he feasted in kingly places, wasn't the kind of man to venture out in the hot, uncomfortable, dangerous wilderness. I'm sure locusts and wild honey didn't appear on his lunch menu very often, aren't you? And we know from Josephus that the public outcry against Herod because of the preaching of John, which is why the noise got to Herod, was undoubtedly part of why he moved to arrest John. So John is preaching against Herod in the open air, denouncing him, calling him publicly to repentance, wanting it to get to Herod, but Herod's not there. We do denounce it. We don't have to, we don't have to set up an appointment, go behind closed doors, and air our grievances to them and them alone. That is what we do within the church. That is not what we do with public figures. Anyway, this detail tells us that the reprimand was undoubtedly a public reprimand. And also I want to point out from our text that John the Baptist was undeterred by power or position. For John had been saying to him, who's him again? Of course we've talked about it. Him is the Tetrarch. Him is the king. Him is the man who has the authority to arrest him, bind him, throw him in prison, and have him decapitated. That's the him he's speaking to. John was neither a compromiser nor a diplomat. His only fear was of the Lord, and he no more hesitated confronting Herod and Herodias with their wickedness than he had hesitated confronting the unrepentant Pharisees and Sadducees who he called a brood of vipers. 
Have you ever heard people say that preachers should stay out of politics? You ever heard that? Anybody? If you haven't, you don't have ears, I think, because it's said all the time. I have five words for that crowd. First, two words that sum up that opinion. Um, it's the, the theological words. Hogwash and poppycock. You need to log those away. That's, that's those, two, those two words. And now three words that will correct that error. Read the Bible. Right? Who's Moses confronting? Pharaoh. Who did the prophet Nathan correct when he was caught in grievous sin? King David. With whom were Elijah's many conflicts? King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Who did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to obey? King Nebuchadnezzar. To whom did Daniel refuse to submit concerning his prayer life? King Darius. Before whom did Jesus stand on trial saying that his power was delegated and limited? Governor Pontius Pilate. Before whom did the Apostle Paul stand in the book of Acts? Procurator Festus, Procurator Felix, and King Agrippa. To whom did Paul appeal so that he could have a hearing even though he could have been released? He wanted to go all the way to the top and he went to Caesar himself. Guys, that's pretty political, isn't it? Jesus is Lord is a deeply political statement. And to Him all nations will one day bow. Amen. And it's our job as Christians to call them to do so now, not later. It'd be unloving for us not to, wouldn't it? We don't only want to uh, evangelize the trailer park. We want people that are poor saved, absolutely. We don't make a distinction, but we don't make a distinction in any either direction. We want everybody to submit to King Jesus and everybody to trust in Him savingly for their sins. We're so confused both as a nation and as Christians in this nation. We think the moniker Christian nationalist is an insult. Man, that's thrown around a lot today, isn't it? You hear it all the time. What part do you dislike? The Christian part? No, we, we like that part, right? Of course not. Okay, well, how about nationalists? Yeah, yeah, that's the part. Oh, which one do you prefer? You, you don't want nationalists? You want a globalist? I mean, what do we want? You, you see, Jesus never called us to do away with nations. He called us to disciple the nations. That's the Great Commission, isn't it? All authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. All authority in heaven and earth over all the nations. Go, therefore, and make disciples of... All the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them. Teaching who? The nations. To observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you. King Jesus, with you always, even to the end of the age. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. All other kings and lords are under Him. And we want all those kings and lords to obey Him for the good of the people under their charge and for the safety of their own souls. I don't just want a Christian nation. I want all of them to be. Don't you? Christ at the head and all rulers ruling under Him according to His laws. What else would we want? We need to recover the reformed understanding of the government. We've got a reformed understanding of the gospel. But you know reform, uh, five points does not reform theology make. Did you know that? If you, just because you understand the tulip and you think you're Reformed, there's a whole lot more to the fleshing out of Reformed theology and it speaks to every area of life. It is all of Christ for all of life. And the Reformed understanding of government is that God instituted government and gave the government the power of the sword. Romans 13, 1-4. It's the responsibility of the civil magistrate to promote justice and righteousness in the land. Both church and state are instituted by God and are to serve as, min instrument in, as ministers of God under the authority of God. Is the church under the authority of King Jesus? Yes. Is the state under the authority of King Jesus? Uh-huh. Absolutely. Which state? Every one of them, whether they acknowledge it or not. One day they'll be brought low if they don't acknowledge it now. But every tribe, tongue, and nation and people is under the authority of Christ because He's purchased it all. That's a Reformed understanding of government. The state is to maintain a safe and just culture in which the church can thrive. And the church is to act as the conscience of the state and the culture. In other words, the church must perform a prophetic role when the state oversteps its bounds. Just as Herod Antipas disliked being corrected, the modern state, they don't like it either. That The tired cry of separation of church and state. Oh my goodness. 
I, I hear it and it just gives me the gag reflex every time I hear it because it becomes especially shrill when the church begins to cry out against unrighteous laws such as the, the allowing of the slaughter of the unborn babies in this country or the mirage of homosexual, I mean marriage of homosexuals or the tyrannies of statism when they overstep their God-given role. When that happens, the newspapers are certainly filled with editorials denouncing the church, political experts, and so-called Christian leaders. Here's looking at you, Gospel Coalition. Christian leaders saying the church shouldn't be involved in government. The church is not to be a lobbying group. Christian needs to just be a... They need to learn to be a faithful presence. Who are we to judge? We need to repent of our sins, which the Bible screams about, and shut up about the cultural sins, which the Bible only whispers about, right? Preach the gospel, pray, sing hymns in your heart, in your homes, and in your pews. But keep your religion out of the marketplace, out of the schools, out of the courts, and out of government. I'm going to tell you this, God forbid. People ask me, they say, do you want the church to take over the state? I say, no, absolutely not. No, I don't want the church to be the state. I want the state to be the state. And I'm, as the church, we're to compel to tell the state to do what God ordained it to do, which is to reward righteousness and to punish evildoers. And both of those things, righteousness and evildoers, has a definition, and that definition is located in the Word of God. And we rebuke them according to God's Word, just like John the Baptist did Herod. We know what God's law says and we stand against the tyrannies of our day and we aren't ashamed that we're saying the the Bible says so. And when they say, I don't care what the Bible says, you say, you will one day. When King Jesus comes and puts you under His feet, submit now. And we're unashamed. So, well, that's just embarrassing in our dignified age of uh, progress and, you know, this antiquated book. Guys, are you secularists or Christians? Because that sounds like a bunch of secularist garbage to me. It's not a Christian understanding of the, of the Word of God that is authoritative over all people. God has established the state to be His minister of justice and righteousness and He's established the church to call them out when they stray from it. And to that end, John the Baptist, our last point about John, he was persistent. Back to verse 4. For John had been saying to him... It's not lawful for you to have her. Notice it says, had been saying, not said to him. The verb is in the imperfect tense and suggests that John had been aiming a steady stream of correction toward Herod. That he was on about it all the time. Can't you ever talk about anything else? Man, I wish you'd get off all that government stuff. I wish you'd talk, stop talking about that political stuff. Hey guys, that was the, that's what people were telling John probably. You think you're holy when you're telling preachers to step down and quit being bold and quit speaking out against the evils of our day and that you wish they'd just preach the gospel? You think you're being holy? You just don't know what you're talking about. John kept telling Herod. He kept saying. He didn't just say it once. He said it again and again and again. Why? Because sin matters. Did you know that? Sin matters. It matters in all of us. But when we're in positions of authority, it matters more because it blesses or curses more people who are under your charge. A man's actions affect him. And a woman's actions affect her, right? But a husband's actions affect him and his wife. He's brought somebody else in under his headship. And when he's wrong, it affects both of them. And a father's actions affect the parents and all the children in the whole household. And an elder's actions affect his whole family and his entire congregation. And a sheriff's actions affect everybody in his entire community. And a tetrarch's actions affect everybody under his jurisdiction. And a president's actions affect everybody under his jurisdiction. Do you think we've got a responsibility if we love people realizing that the curses of God come from top down over whole people groups that we must call people who are in positions of authority to repent and submit to God's Word? Of course. Christians are not just concerned with their own individual eternal destination. We are blessed that we might be a blessing and we bless the world through evangelism and discipleship. Remember back to the Sermon on the Mount. Remember that? Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called 
the sons of God. But we have to remember what peacemakers means. Because when we think that, we mean we think people who get rid of conflict, right? That's what we think of. Peacemakers, somebody that there's two people at odds with each other and we do away with their conflict. That's how we think of peacemakers, but that's not what the word means at all. Biblical peace is not merely the absence of conflict, but the presence of righteousness. This is John MacArthur. Men can stop fighting without righteousness, but they can never live peaceably without righteousness. God's peace not only stops war, but replaces it with the righteousness that leads to true harmony and well-being. That's essential to the biblical definition of peace. It's the shalom of God is what we're talking about. The peacemakers are people who act to bring in the shalom of God. At the risk of sounding like a prosperity preacher, I want to define the word shalom for you. It entails completeness, soundness, welfare, health, security, tranquility of life and spirit, prosperity, unaffectedness and safety. The Jewish greeting shalom wishes peace and expresses the desire that the one who is greeted will have all the righteousness and goodness that God can give. The deepest meaning of this greeting of of shalom is God's highest and fullest good to you. The peacemakers are people who are doing things to bring that to their community and to people all around them. Many people today insist that we not offend culture, that we avoid speaking on transgenderism, on homosexuality, on cohabitation, on abortion, on feminism, on stewardship and debt, on gender roles, on authority, because those ideas divide. Let's just live how we want and be at peace. Have no conflict. Do we want to have no conflict or do we want the shalom of God? The shalom of God. And His ways matter. His ways lead to blessing. These are false prophets that want us to not speak to those things. Sent from the enemy to deceive the people of God. And they've been among us ever since the serpent said, You shall not surely die, take and eat. Turn to, look, think about that. The serpent comes to Adam and Eve, says, You shall not surely die, think and eat. They kept the peace. They just listened to the serpent and did what he said. They kept the peace. There wasn't any conflict between Adam and the serpent. Well, don't you think that it would have been better if he would have uh, had a little conflict, stomped on that serpent's head, grabbed his woman, run off, and and went away and saved the day? There would have been conflict immediately, but we would still be in the Garden of Eden today, wouldn't we? Right? It wasn't the plan of God, but that immediate conflict would have brought, would have maintained the shalom of God for Adam and Eve. Turn with me to Jeremiah 23, 16-22. Jeremiah 23, 16-22. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. The opposite of the shalom of God is futility, emptiness, void, not God's best and highest good for you. They're leading you to futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord has said you shall have peace, you shall have the shalom of God, to people who aren't walking in God's ways. That's what the false prophets are saying. Do you see this? And as for everyone who walks in the stubbornness of his own heart, they say calamity will not come upon you. But who has stood in the counsel of the Lord that he should see and hear his word? Who has given heed to the word and listened? Behold, the storm of the Lord has gone forth in wrath, even a whirling tempest. It will swirl down on the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has performed and carried out the purposes of his heart. In the last days you will clearly understand it. I will not send these prophets, but I did not send these prophets, but they ran. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have announced my words to my people and they would, and would have turned them back from their evil way and from their evil deeds. The implication, if they would repent, they could have the shalom of God on their lives. But there's prophets that are saying, hey, we don't need to meddle into people's lives and tell them how they need to live. We don't need to call people to the right, righteous ways of God. 
Do not listen to the voice of those prophets. You say, well, you sound like you're preaching works-based salvation. I didn't say anything about salvation. We're saved by grace through faith in the completed work of Christ Jesus. That's the only way we can be saved and none of us are ever going to be perfectly conformed to the law of God. Amen. But, if we are saved by grace through faith, but when we live a, a life of wanton pleasure, ignoring God's law, will there not be consequences on our lives and the lives of our wives and the lives of our children and the lives of our society all around us? Yes. And is everything just about getting to go to heaven one day? Absolutely. It's not all it's about, is it? Absolutely not. We want to image God rightly in His world. And when we image Him rightly through sanctification, there's blessing on us and blessing on everybody that we're around. We care about that too. And it will lead to easier and, and, and propagation of the gospel and make it easier for the church to flourish. Repentance, being reconciled to God, submitting to the authority of King Jesus is the only path to the shalom of God in a society. Jeremiah 8, 11-12 They heal the brokenness of the daughter of my people superficially, saying, Peace, peace, but there is no peace. Were they ashamed because of the abominations that they had done? They were certainly not ashamed, and they did not know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall, and the time of their punishment they shall be brought down, says the Lord. Does that not define Herod right here? He's not ashamed of his abominations. And a true prophet of God is calling back and speaking the truth to those who are in power. As peacemakers, we are to be pursuing the shalom of God for our lives and for the lives of others. And it's impossible to divorce the shalom of God from truth. A peacemaker cannot simply ignore sin and agree to disagree. Why? Because sin leads to destruction. It leads to discord. Sin destroys the shalom of God in individual lives, in families, in communities, in countries, and in the entire world. Had sin never entered the human experience in the Garden of Eden, then we'd still be enjoying that peaceful existence till this day. Your sin does not only affect you. That's a satanic lie from hell. You ever heard it? It only hurts me. It's not true. Matthew, Mark 7, 21-22. From within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Look at the trail of human suffering left in the wake of the outpouring of the sinful heart. There's no peace when sin is present. And that unrest is exactly what we see in the wake of Herod and Herodias, following their hearts instead of following God's law. Remember Herod's first wife, the daughter of Eretus, the king of the Nabataeans? Remember we talked about her? We don't know her name, but you remember her? When Herod sent her back, disgraced and deflowered to King Eretus, he didn't like that much. Do you know that? The phrase politically explosive springs to mind. Um, and some years later, Eretus attacked. There was great loss of life, and Antipas himself, they were defeated. His armies were defeated. Ultimately, Rome intervened, and Herod kept his throne for a little while longer. But the, le the, the loss remained. Sin leaves a trail of suffering and death. But in another way, speaking the truth does too, temporarily. You say, speaking the truth leads a trail of suffering and death? Yeah, but where that's eternal, ours is overturned. But it does, it does lead to suffering when we speak the truth. That persistence of John the Baptist ultimately pushed Herod too far. And we see John the Baptist as an example of our second point. God's people are willing to suffer for speaking the truth. Look at verse 3. For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. He sent, and, and then in verse 10, look forward, he, Herod, sent and had John beheaded in prison. John was a courageous man. He knew the danger in which he was placing himself by continuing to denounce Herod for his marriage. Kings just hate being denounced. They are totally against it. Don't like it at all. But for John, even, uh, the ire of Herodias was even more dangerous. And we're going to talk more about that murderous hussy in the next sermon. But John the Baptist understood people in power well enough to know what might happen. And what do we see play out? In verse 3, we see that Herod had John arrested bound and put in prison, apparently in the dungeon in his palace at Machaerus. 
The palace was located on a mountain that was even higher than the city of Jerusalem and it offered a beautiful view that Herod enjoyed every day while surrounded by servants who catered to his every desire. Contrast that with the dungeon in which we find John underneath that castle. It was dug deep in the ground. Archaeologists have discovered many places in the dungeon where prisoners were chained to the walls. So you're way down deep in the ground, probably chained. That's probably how John the Baptist was. There was no natural light at all. That can drive a man insane. And only dank, foul, putrid air to breathe. In that dungeon, John the Baptist found himself incarcerated for about a full year. Think about that, guys. He's there, nobody around him, hardly at all ever, very seldom. Sometimes we learn from Luke that Herod would come down and actually talk to him. And apparently somehow word got to him through his disciples because they went and talked to Jesus in chapter 11. But for the most part, he's alone, deep in a hole, cold, chained to the wall, dark, with dank, foul, moist, musky, mold-filled air for a full year. And after that year of suffering, that year of hoping his fortunes would change, can you imagine he's down there and he don't know what the outcome's going to be and sometimes he's hopeful he might get out and other times he becomes hopeless. Can you imagine the depression that would creep into your heart? The year of fighting off questions about why God had forsaken him and what in the world is Jesus doing? I thought Jesus was my bro. I thought he was my friend. I thought he was the Messiah. I thought he was going to come in Messiah. Why ain't he busting some heads? Right? After a full year of those torturous conditions and those even more tormenting thoughts, the door flings open. John's chains are loosed. He doesn't know what's going on. He's forced down and his head's taken off of his shoulders. Undoubtedly, John the Baptist had hoped that Herod and Herodias would repent and enter the kingdom of heaven. And if not, he surely hoped King Jesus would come and swing that axe that was laid at the root of the trees. That he'd show up, winnowing fork in hand, and gather the wheat, John the Baptist, into the barn, and burn up the chaff, Herod and Herodias, with unquenchable fire, like he preached about in John 3, 10 through 12. Remember, John even challenged Jesus to do so from prison through his disciples in chapter 11, verse 3. He knew Jesus was able... All followers of Christ know that Jesus is able to present us from suffering. But no follower of Christ demands that Jesus prevent us from suffering. We know He can, but we must not ever demand He do anything. He's already done it all, hasn't He? He already went the path of suffering and death. He already conquered death on our behalf. And if we must follow Him through it in order to gain the resurrection from the dead, the Christian heart says, so be it. But I will obey you as my Lord and King no matter what. All the way to the end. That's the heart of the Christian. We're like Daniel 3, 15 through 18. We mentioned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But do you remember when Nebuchadnezzar he said, If you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, t- uh, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of the fire, a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there that can deliver you out of my hands? <laughs> they knew the answer to that. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God who we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. That's the heart of the Christian. We know he can God forbid we ever demand that He does. We are yielded before the will of a holy God. I will obey with you, though you slay me, yet I will praise you. From where does that suffering come? From at least two places, both of which we find in the missionary discourse. First, we know that the suffering is coming. That will help us. Knowing it's coming is important. Any any pastoral ministry that avoids the topic of suffering is doing their congregation a great disservice. We must know it's coming. It's all through the Bible. Everywhere. If it, if, if it catches us unexpected, we're sure to fall. But knowing it's coming helps. 
In the missionary discourse, Jesus told the disciples in no uncertain terms what was coming. Matthew 10, 16-18, Behold, I send you out as sheep among the wolves, threatening their safety. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, threatening their comfort. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles, threatening their freedom. And in verse 21 through 23, Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will raise up against parents and cause them to be put to death, threatening their lives. Jesus wanted us to know there's no guarantee that He saves us here and now. 1 Thessalonians 3, 2-4, through 4, Paul recognized the importance of warning, of letting people know that suffering was coming. We sent Timothy, Paul says, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that you were going to suffer affliction. And it came to pass, just as you know. Knowing protects you. But also, it ain't just knowing that it's coming. It's knowing that it ain't the end when it does come. Matthew 10, also here in the Missionary Discourse, 10, 38-39. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. But he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. There's a resurrection coming, isn't there? Luke 2, 21, 16-19. I love this verse. He says, You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. You say, why do you love that verse? What goes on? You will be hated by all because of my name. Yet not one hair of your head will perish. Wait, I thought you said that we would be put to death. You will. You will be put to death. And not one hair on your head will perish. And by your endurance you will gain your lives. You know what? You know how many hairs that, hair, that John the Baptist lost when they beheaded him? All of them. I don't know how many were on there. There's more than mine and Thomas's, I'm pretty sure. Right? But when, when, that, when that went off, they were all gone. But you know what? John's going to get every single hair back. That the very hairs of your head are numbered means that God will resurrect us and He will make right every wrong that's ever been committed against us. That justice doesn't just mean that the wicked are punished. It means that the righteous are completely restored in the resurrection. I think that reminding John of that, that was the purpose of Jesus' message to John the Baptist in, verse, in, in chapter 11. If you want to flip to chapter 11, let me look at it briefly again. Notice both elements are thinly veiled but plainly pleasant, present in Jesus' response when John asks, Are you the expected one or should we look for someone else? And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the dead, uh, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Jesus is quoting from multiple Isaiah texts like we looked at last week, but he leaves out what would have been the most encouraging aspect of all these Isaiah texts to John. It would have filled his most obvious felt need. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. Man, I bet John wanted to hear that. Jesus didn't quote it. Expect to stay there, John. But Jesus adds something that's not found in any of these messianic prophecies. He adds, the dead are raised. What does Jesus want John to know? John, you've served well. You've proclaimed truth in the midst of opposition. But I'm not coming to your rescue. You are going to suffer a little longer. And you're going to die in that dungeon. But I'm about to conquer death and pave the way for your resurrection through my own death, paying for your sins on the cross and conquering death by bursting forth from the grave. That's the end of the story. John had to just not be offended by things not working out the way he had hoped and believe without the benefit of hindsight. How much easier should it be for us? We, John hadn't seen a resurrected, exalted Christ. He hadn't even heard about that yet. He just had to trust. We know about it, don't we? 
in Philippians 3, 10 through 11, that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship, the partnering with Him in His sufferings, being conformed to His death in order that I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. That's the path to glory for Christians is that we unashamedly speak against evil, suffer for doing so, die in the path of faithfulness, but that's not the end. There's a resurrection for us. Romans 8, 16-19, the Spirit Himself teaches with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we might be glorified with Him. If we suffer, we will be glorified with Him. And it is a necessary aspect of the Christian's existence. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Remember the peacemaker's text we looked at earlier. It's the last thing I want to consider one last time here in Matthew 5, 9 through 12. You remember, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. You know what it mentions immediately following that? Verse 10. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Verse 10, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You're trying to be a peacemaker by proclaiming righteousness. People that listen, they get the shalom of God on their lives. People that don't, they persecute you. But yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men insult you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely because of me. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Why? Because great is your reward in heaven. Stay the course. Be a John the Baptist. Know what's going on. Know God's law so you can apply it to society around you. Speak the truth to everybody who needs to hear it, regardless of their position or their power. And be persistent because them heeding matters. We don't give up. We persevere. If you're a peacemaker, you will not experience peace with everyone on earth prior to the consummation, but you will experience your reward with Christ in the kingdom of heaven in the consummation. I love the words of A.T. Robertson, old uh, New Testament scholar, Greek, Greek scholar. He said of John the Baptist, he said, It cost him his head, but it's better to have a head like John the Baptist and lose it than an ordinary head and get to keep it. Guys, let's have a head like John the Baptist. What's that like? One that's set toward obedience to Christ. One that wants to know the truth and proclaim the truth. And then even if we lose the head, not one hair on our head will perish. Kind of gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this example of this great man of God. We thank you for the faith that you gave him. We thank you for his uncompromising commitment to truth. God, uh, no, down to this day, you don't have people named Herod and Herodias, but man, we're naming our, our sons John. Lord, I thank you for that. I pray that you would give us the courage of John in the same way that there was progress throughout the Roman Empire because of the spread of your gospel, that many of the atrocities were overcome at least temporarily by the spread of your, of your gospel and, and your law throughout all of the land. Lord, we pray for a, a, a renewal in our day, Lord, a revival. We pray that you would use us. Let us be uncompromising like that and cause your word to spread rapidly and be glorified just as it was in that day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.